0: Hi everyone, I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. Welcome back to our podcast, Books and Beyond with Bound, Season 4, where we speak to some of the finest writers in India to find out what makes them tick.
1: Yes, and we are editors, podcasters and storytellers. And through Bound, we help you create stories and put them out into the world.
0: So today's episode is a favourite of mine because... You know how much I love to travel, Michelle, um, and I love reading accounts of women travellers. Um, and we speak to the very uh, fabulous Taran Khan, who is the author of Shadow City today. It's the ultimate traveller.
1: Yeah, and she's actually explored Kabul on foot over eight long years, you know, traversing graveyards to libraries and whatnot.
0: I love this view into Afghanistan, you know, it's a book that is partly a memoir, partly a travel guide, partly a text on culture Um, and I find it so tough to find a niche angle in non-fiction and I really wanted to know how she decided to pick this angle of being a planeer that's somebody who explores a place by foot. Yeah, yeah,
1: actually that was the USP. You're right? But but what I also found fascinating was that, you know, her book is filled with interesting details about Persian culture, that is music, poetry. So I wanted to know, you know, as an Indian woman, how did she experience that? I'm really interested in it.
0: Yeah, that that's for sure. And we're going to find out all about that. But before that, there's an announcement that we have. So, you know, we get so many queries from people who want to work on their non-fiction book and they have many different ideas. Uh, You know, we have people saying, I want to write a memoir, I want to write a travelogue, much like Taran's books. Um, And I love non-fiction. I love working with non-fiction writers. And we've seen a lot of non-fiction books come out into the world because of our mentorship program. I have a few slots of our mentorship program left this year and I'm really looking to work with some of the best non-fiction ideas out there. So if you want to work with me on your nonfiction idea, please do reach out and if I love it, you will hear from me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just can't wait to see the kind of ideas that come in Tara. So now let's traverse Kabul with Taran Khan. Traverse indeed.
0: (laughs) Today, we have a really, really amazing author, Taran Khan. Welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Welcome, Taran. Very excited to speak to you.
2: Thank you. Likewise.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, it was really amazing to read about your book because it gave us an inside view into a different kind of Afghanistan. You know, I'm sure we're all really tired of hearing these stereotypes of Afghanistan. It's kind of, it reminds me of, you know, when... Only sort of like one side of India is also portrayed on screen. Uh, So, your book really reminded us that there's so many different sides to Afghanistan life. So, coming to the episode, the episode will have three sections. In the first section, it's called Walk the Talk with Taran, and we're going to be focusing on your journey of writing this book and also how you discovered Kabul on foot, which is amazing. (laughs) The second section is going to explore your reading habits, and then we have our signature rapid fire round which i'm sure you'll really enjoy so enough of me talking let's begin
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. so let's i think kick off the you know most exciting section which is walk the top with Taran. i mean i wish we were actually walking with you but uh, you know we are stuck at home it's the pandemic but i'm glad that we are actually speaking so um, Taran, the most interesting part of your profile is that you know you're from aligarh you're an indian woman and your mm-hmm. love for Kabul is, you know, palpable throughout your book and and whatever you've been doing to, you know, push the book. And and we also saw that your uh, writing has been covered in Granta's recent issue, the travel writing issue. So congrats um, on that. Thanks you. So, so we so we wanted to know, you know, what drew you to Kabul out of all the places on earth? Why Kabul?
2: Uh, that's a yeah. It's a question I've asked myself also a lot. Um, so thanks for asking that. But. I mean, I think this was the first time I went was in 2006. And you know, how, like most people, I had heard of Kabul through war, I had heard of it through the stories of the Taliban era, and then after the Taliban was overthrown about how the country was changing. But I also sort of had this long standing fascination for the country. Um, because my father's side of the family is Pashtun, and we had this uh, sort of story We told ourselves that you know our ancestors were from that part of the world which turned out not to be true Eventually when I got to Afghanistan, I found out this was pure fantasy uh, But I had always felt the sort of curiosity I think a lot of people of my generation maybe uh, Because we, we remember so clearly the Bamiyan Buddhas coming down and then of course the whole era of um, NATO forces going into the country. These are very big events in our lives. So Afghanistan sort of was a place where I was, which I was very curious about for a number of reasons. So um, when I got the opportunity along with my husband and another friend to work there um, with a small TV and radio station in Kabul, so we just jumped at it and we uh, enjoyed that experience so much. A, lo- a lot of the reason why we fell in love with the city was because the people who showed us around and who let us into their lives were really remarkable. And I think that kind of proximity, the very first instance of exploring the city was through intimacy. And I think that really made a difference for me um, in the desire I had for going back, which I did over the years until 2013. So that's the arc of the book from 2006 to 13. But also in hindsight, I think the emotion with which I went to Afghanistan was one of curiosity, of uh, just really happiness. And I think that also made a difference to how I interacted with the city. My maternal grandfather, who I call Baba, he had never been to Kabul, but um, he also sort of fueled this uh, connection in a very interesting way, which was purely by um, literary or cultural references, because he knew the city in a way that seemed really interesting to me. It seemed, again, very intimate, very... um, Sort of, uh, you know, even I would say uh, almost tactile in a way that I couldn't How did he,
0: what was the difference between how, because you mentioned, you know, his influences there throughout the
2: book. So what was the difference
0: between how he viewed the city and how you viewed?
2: I mean, that's really the heart of the book in a way, you know, because his whole connection with Kabul, even though he had never been there, and he told me that, you know, there are certain cities that you never visit, but you know really well. And one of them for him was Kabul and another one was London. So through books, through reading, through immersion in, I think, just the whole sort of shared culture that our region has, he was really fluent in it. And so just to give you an example, you know, I went there and I would tell him about, um, you know, so-and-so place and or so-and-so garden. And he would then tell me a story about that garden. And then when I went back, I would ask the people there, right, you know, is this a literary illusion or is this something that happened in the story? And they would say, yes, yes, of course. And, you know, this other thing also connects it. And so it just grew for me in this very beautiful, subtle way through my grandfather, which was Almost like he was building a bridge from his study in Aligarh, which is where he lived and uh, the city that he had never seen. um, But he really knew very well and with a lot of love, I think.
0: That's so heartwarming to hear, uh, you know, that especially your grandfather being a bridge because our grandparents are a bridge for us for so many things. And your fascination with Kabul, it makes me think about my fascination for Pakistan in a way, because... Um, I love Achal Malotra's work because you know my family came from Pakistan and there's always so much talk about it but I've never really experienced it or understood too much about you know what daily life there would have been. Yeah mm-hmm. and
1: actually what I liked about uh, you know the difference especially in the difference between you the way you and your grandfather experienced it was his was mainly through Persian and Urdu texts, right? And you was yes, through Western. Absolutely. So I was really yeah. fascinated by that. So, so can you tell us a little bit about that, if it's possible? Like, like what was the biggest difference? I'll say just because of the language difference.
2: I mean, like I said, it was. Just, I think from him, I just got a sense of proximity that was missing for me, at least initially. You know, because I mean, Kabul is very densely engraved terrain. It's been written about in so many ways, especially in the Western tradition of explorers and. Um, you know, people coming from very far away and writing about it in a certain way, which was how I approached it at least initially, and that was my big frame of reference. But for my grandfather, it was like a place that he knew through the poetry of, say, Iqbal, or that he knew through the Shaname. and these were things that were shared with his own life, you know. There wasn't that sense of understanding it in this um, distanced way, but it seemed much closer to his own life, and I think that was very palpable for me because um, I would try to understand it or I would try to, um, you know, process it in this way that was, that was uh, you know, giving a sense of distance to it.
0: And, you know, I don't want to call your book a travelogue, but it is unlike any other travel writing that I've read. You know, it blends a memoir, poetry, culture, insights. Um, and travel writing is something, I'm you know, it, it very fascinated with for obvious reasons. And I really wanted to ask you about it. Uh, you know, If mm-hmm. I had to visit a place and I've been to many, I wouldn't know what to look for. You know, for example, mm. one of your chapters in your books only focuses on graveyard. So when you were sort of, you know, walking around Kabul, or when you walk around any place, how do you pick an angle to write about?
2: Uh, that's a really interesting question. I don't think anyone's asked me that in that quite that way yet (laughs) so it's always useful to look back on these processes because i think so much of it for me at least was i started from a place of not really writing any one thing you know i didn't certainly didn't set out to write a travelogue and i was very sure i did not want to write a memoir um what happened really was that uh i i was so fascinated by things in the city that weren't really falling in place when I wrote news or when I wrote news features, even when I wrote what I thought of as reportage, which is a lot of what the book is. It's non-fiction, narrative non-fiction. But that seemed inadequate to bring in all the layers, all the feelings, the sort of multifaceted nature of the city that kept revealing itself. So if you you know, for once uh, one one Friday, I was walking down the street, and I just saw it was a very ordinary day. and I was just walking down the street, and there's a wall running next to the street. and um on the wall in one section, someone had you know put a layer of uh, mud on top of the wall to make it firm. And you could see the imprint of that person's hand on the wall. And that struck me as such a beautiful connection, you know, with this place. and I really wondered, how do I communicate what this moment feels like? Because it doesn't feel like I'm in a city that is defined by war only. Um, Of course, there are imprints of war and suffering in Kabul. At that time, it had been through close to 40 years of conflict. Um, But uh, this was a sense of connection. This was a sense of uh, banality and magic that I wanted to communicate. And I think the multi-genre or the multi-sort of um, diverse Approaches that kept, came into the book were in service of this idea of trying to communicate how many things are going on in that moment there. So I honestly I wasn't looking for angles. I the other really useful thing that happened to me in terms of being a writer was that I could spend a lot of time in Kabul, and I feel that was really key to how I could eventually write about it because. Um, being able to see the seasons change, being able to see how the city shifting, but also having durable relationships, sort of seeing the same families, children growing up, um, visiting your friends every time you go back. This is a, a, a portrait of a city that's completely different from if you go to a city to write about it. And I think this was very key for me, that the city unfolded in a certain way for me, which I could then try to capture, try to... Um, reproduce or at least represent in the book.
0: That I liked what you said that, you know um the longer you stay in a place, the more it unfolds. Because a lot Mm -hmm. of us go to a place for, you know, 10 or 15 days and sort of experience it and then come back. But you know, I personally felt from, you know, living abroad as well that things really come to you in such a unique way once you get to know the people who live there. And you showed that so well in your book, you know, uh, your interactions with the local people who are living in Afghanistan or having their everyday life. And that was one of my favorite parts of the book. But uh, coming to, you know, uh, I also really like the theme of walking. Mm-hmm. Um, you chose to walk the streets of Kabul. And that really struck me because I remember actually coming back from, uh, I was living in the UK, I remember coming back from the UK to Bombay. And yeah, you can walk in Bombay, but not quite in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember writing a whole essay on walking. And it was very interesting to me, you know, how you chose that trope. Uh, so yeah, why did you choose choose that trope? And, and what other books come to you uh, when you think of walking and discovering a place? Like one book that comes to me is Peju Cole's Open City about mm-hmm. New York.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm yeah that's a really great book and i i really love that book and also uh i think this i wouldn't say that i was drawing from these inspirations directly but you know like rebecca solnit's work on walking and wandering and exploring different terrains i think was really revelatory for me in a sense also um, how you can treat the whole idea of metaphor as a writer and how many things you can then take in When you you take that framework and move with it. I think that's what really appealed to me about the whole image of a woman walking. As you say, it's a powerful image, it's a very potent image, and it's also one that I think has a special resonance for uh, women who haven't had this uh, fluency um, in public spaces, like I didn't as a young woman in Aligarh, even in other parts of India. Uh, like you said, I agree with you that you can walk in Mumbai, but in a different way from how you can walk in other parts of the world. I think the fa- sense that I could never really take this for granted was quite key in how it framed my writing of Kabul. Once I started writing it, uh, the book, it seemed to be such a capacious idea because when you talk of walking, well, the first reason why I had thought about it was because how... I immediately felt comfortable in a way in Kabul because one of the very first things I heard when I got there was, well, don't walk anywhere. And it so happened that I wasn't told this because I'm a woman. It was, you know, the, the men who were with me were told the same thing, but it just landed so differently for me because this was what i had been hearing since I was young. And uh, so, of course, I felt like, oh, well, this is a city that sounds familiar. So then maybe since I figured out how to sort of bypass certain restrictions or to negotiate certain routes in India, maybe I can do the same here. Um, That was really the entry point into thinking about walking as a way of exploring Kabul. The difficulties around walking were another reason why it seemed quite evident as, as a symbol for how things changed over time. There was the change in which you could walk around the city was also an interesting way for me to measure Uh, I think the shifts that happened from 2006 to 2013, one part of it was in the physical terrain of the city. Certain streets simply vanished behind the security apparatus that came up as time went by. Um, And of course, then there was the whole idea, like I would wander with my grandfather in Kabul without actually being in the city. I thought that really opened up the space for me in a way that really, uh, I think, liberated me from the idea of having to write about kabul in a certain way because um then you can take in so much more then you can talk to people about their memories you can talk about jinns about you know ghosts and family legends and all of that becomes uh, interesting valid stuff to put in for a reader and i think that made a difference to me because i because in that shift was a shift in how you could see kabul away from just cliches away from being just one thing to being many many things and being a complicated vibrant difficult beautiful city with history with layers
1: yeah and I, you've done that oh, very well Taran but you know adding to that it made me think about how women are often told you know like you can only go to a certain place or you can only visit a place at a particular time of day right so there are so many restrictions that come up and as you mentioned walking was just one of the hindrances. Um, that came across. But I was curious about, you know, were there any other hindrances that came along the way that you never expected? Like, if you could, you know, maybe share an incident with us, something that you didn't expect at all?
2: Yeah, what I do feel is that um, it's slightly different from your question, Michelle, but it's, I think, important to mention. And this kind of ties in with Tara's question also about uh, travel writing being one particular kind of writing or not. I think uh, as a woman from South Asia, being in Kabul uh, and then writing about Kabul felt like a special challenge because the whole kind of tradition of writing about Kabul as a man or as a woman is so deeply defined from a Western perspective. And I had, um, it was a journey for me to be able to reconcile the fact that I would be in different parts of the city or I would find different stories interesting. You know, So for instance, like... Um, the whole experience with uh, just, uh, you know, visiting a, a shell or a, a space for drug users in the city, uh, women drug users in the city, it was an intensely moving experience. Um, trying to write about it uh, was, was difficult because I had to really learn to see the value in these moments and these stories. And I don't mean news value, but I mean just value of stories. Um, as an Indian woman, it was a process for me to, realized that my own perspective and the spaces I was able to visit and the stories I was able to access were not necessarily uninteresting in fact it could even be seen as an asset and I think it was also important for me along the way that uh, my book won an award for travel writing because I think we often think of travel writing as being something that moves in one direction which is uh, you know people from the perceived center of the world explaining the margins for us even if these margins are places that we might know well or that we might have closer access to um, I think this this is sort of important to widen how we think of as travel and who gets to tell these stories of travel and when I say travel I mean place um, and also to to rec- to recognize the worth of spaces like this and the stories like these so yeah sort of a tangential answer to your question but <laughs> I hope it makes sense.
0: Yeah, you know, that that's something that uh, I think about a lot, you know, uh, these untold stories and who tells them, because you have sort of like three cups of tea and you have uh, a lot of Western perspectives. And what I found interesting about your perspective was that it was not, but it also then struck me that, you know, uh, you were still a foreigner in the place. Mm-hmm. That is also that dichotomy. But I also want to talk about, you know, This book came out in 2019 and as you say, you know, it shows a completely different side of Afghanistan from these amazing libraries that have existed for years to we already spoke about women crossing graveyards. So now, you know, since uh, the unfortunate situation in Afghanistan, how do you think the world will perceive your book now and what reception has it been getting uh, recently?
2: I have no idea how the world will perceive the book, but I think for me, it's become incredibly poignant to, even when I'm talking to people like you or to other people who are asking me about the book, it just feels like uh, really, really moving and meaningful to think about Kabul and to recall these stories of Kabul, because uh, so much has changed so suddenly. And even in 2013, which was my last journey. It's not as if things were perfect, you know, there's a temptation now to romanticize this era and to think of it as this wonderful time, which is not true at all. It was a difficult time for Afghans uh, in so many ways. And I have written about how many people, even in 2013, my friends were either leaving or they were planning to leave. Um, so I wouldn't make the mistake of juxtaposing the present reality with a uh, imagined uh, rosy past, but uh, it's just... It's really heartbreaking to see what's happening in Afghanistan. And it's, I just hope that this book, in a way, is a memory of, of a certain time, of a certain city, and of a city with certainly deeper complexity and with a deeper history than what we usually think of it. And I also worry that you know, after the initial media um, uh, you know, coverage of Kabul, especially of Kabul, especially of Kabul airport, that was really where most of the oxygen was going, um, Kabul has been forgotten comprehensively in the past. For example, during the civil war, before the Taliban captured the country for the first time. And uh, I worry that that might happen again. That, uh, and I feel it's really important to continue to pay attention, especially to Afghan voices, um, because there is now there are now so many skilled Afghan journalists, writers, using social media, using their experiences to talk about this. I feel like it's, uh, it behooves us to pay attention to these voices now more than ever.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, that feeling of memory was so poignant um, across the book. Um, And I think you're absolutely right when it could serve as a period of that and also not to romanticize, uh, you know, the past that you have portrayed. So I want to also ask you, you know, uh, we mentioned how you've traveled all over Kabul and you've written this book over many, many years. Uh, So it must have been very difficult to maintain this though you had sort of tropes and devices that you worked with to get inside the book but it must have been still difficult to maintain the tone and the pace and the mood over such a long period of time so how did you manage to do that and how did the you know structure and the style of the book come
2: yeah it's always uh, the craft questions are, are harder for me to explain because so much of it i think Simply was the city taking shape in its own time on the page, you know. Uh, but I would say for me, a lot of the struggle was, as I mentioned, learning to trust myself, trust my voice, uh, learning to trust the stories that I had encountered, and to believe that um, I could actually write about these things. In terms of the structure of the book, the big struggle really for me was to not um, was to not adhere to the template. Which uh, I would find was of, I would, was encouraged to go towards, which was of memoir. I just felt that there were so many stories already of journalists in conflict zones that it wasn't interesting to have one more of those stories. So I think my my, my motivation was to simply make the city the heroine of this book, uh, was to foreground the city in a way that allowed it to, the voices that I'd encountered here to speak as clearly as possible. And certainly for the layers that emerged. In Kabul, to be able to to be to present these layers to readers in the best possible way, and also, of course, to connect uh, my own experiences in the with my grandfather, and coming back and forth between memory, my own memories and the memories of Kabulis, and the myths I heard, and the fables, and then the stories from literature, all of this to put it together on the page—that was really the difficult process, right? And I think the key for me was was the idea of walking. Like I said, it gave a fluidity to the entire structure of the book, I think, once I got this um, structure in mind. And it was a much longer book when I started writing it. So I was really lucky to have the opportunity to work with a really good editor, my editor in the UK, Greg Klaus. He was quite instrumental in helping me shape um, the book after the first draft in the sense that he could help me recognize what might be extraneous um, I also feel that uh, he was able to help me bring a, a unity to the book that was initially lacking. I had initially thought of it as a series of uh, different essays, maybe, with uh, with no connection. And I think being able to discover these connections, being able to structure it like a story that moves across time, most of all gave space for the readers to furnish it with their own imagination. This was really important to me. I wanted to resist telling readers what this book is, because then they could figure out what it is for themselves, you know, and I think that is something I'm happy to have found in the structure of the book, is that it allows the reader to wander in their own imagination, in their own memories, to provide the details in the empty spaces of table to put whatever they like, or put whatever they feel belongs there.
1: Yeah, and I think editors are really godsends, right? Like, like they say, yeah. <laughs> um, the difference between a good book versus a great book, right? That, that's where the editor, uh, that's the kind of role that they play. So, you know, while we were discussing the time period uh, of Afghanistan, Taran, I was actually thinking of this, you know, time capsule that people talk about, like, you know, you you keep the most, I would say, important things in it, right? And you bury it. And then probably, you mm-hmm. know, people discover it like 100 years later. I was actually thinking that, you know, your book would be a great book to add to a time capsule, because I think mm-hmm. probably if it's visited like 100 years later, you know, like like a character in your book says, this was Afghanistan too you know, so that Mm -hmm. because we often only hear just the same story again and again churned out on all media platforms. So I can't even imagine, you know, how it would be read um, 100 years down the line. So I was just thinking about that um, when we were chatting. But you know, um, I think one of the most interesting chapters in your book, uh, Taran, which is dedicated to films, right? Films from Afghanistan. You mentioned yeah. that some of these newsreels that you came across, right? And you said that they could be carefully crafted fictions. I found that very intriguing. So can you please elaborate on that? Like, what was fact? What was fiction?
2: Well, this was absolutely the interesting thing about these newsreels, right? And because I'd grown up in India watching these documentaries, which were Uh, you know, the films division or sort of state-sponsored documentaries and then there's this whole tradition of documentaries that serve a certain propaganda purpose, I was very open or I I should say maybe I was quite uh, aware of the idea that what we call documentaries in this sense could be actually serving a purpose that went beyond uh, what was apparent. Uh, you know, for example, all these films about nation building, which were very much evident in, in Kabul as well, they were in fact serving agendas, they were serving purposes of propaganda. So, in that sense, I found that they were actually, you could think of them as fiction, and that fitted in really, you know, uh, beautifully with how the lines between reality and fantasy and what is true and what is just imagined in Kabul constantly seem to blur. So, you know, this was such a beautiful uh, journey into the archives because I could explore how many ways there were of constructing Kabul out of these fragments of images. We also saw, I think, quite recently on the internet, for example, these images of women in mini skirts in Kabul. And that, that image is quite often referenced as a way to talk about how the city has changed. And it was even, you know, sort of mentioned. I think, to sort of justify the American presence at one time. And I think that is, again, an interesting example of how images can take on a life of their own beyond the context in which they were taken. Because, of course, there were women in miniskirts skirts in the 70s in Kabul. Of course, these were women who were in a minority, and it was a much more complicated situation than you know, this beautiful progressive city that's completely in ruins now, which is what the subtext of these photographs being circulated now on social media is. So I think for me, the film archive was this place of intense discovery.
0: I never thought about uh, films that way. And that, so that was really quite an interesting perspective. And I never actually, you know, really have given much thought to images uh, apart from the Mm. obvious, you know, images of, uh, you know, these beautiful influencers on Instagram, mm-hmm. what they do. do. <laughs> yeah, But the other thing that I found very interesting was that the whole uh, conversation around subtext and building these narratives, as humans sort of, we want to uh, make true a cling to like Afghanistan was a very liberal place and now it's in ruins. Like, that is something that is almost like a good story, and the image justifies that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never thought about it in that way because I'll admit I was also prey to uh, that kind of thinking when I saw those images. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so I want to get to something more personal now. Um, I'm very interested in knowing, you know, how writers sort of like first introduced to storytelling and our first introduced to writing and i noticed in the acknowledgement section of your book uh you mentioned how your grandmother contributed to the very first stories you ever heard and that's something Uh that even i have in common with you so do you remember (laughs) any of these stories we'd love to hear that
2: (laughs) yeah you've done a really close reading of the book thank you so much for that tara Um, But yeah, I mean, it just felt, uh, you know, my grandfather is so present in the book and uh, it would have been completely false to have not acknowledged the debt to my nanny. Uh, In a way, both of them were, you know, sort of warp and weft of this texture of my life. But my grandmother was uh, slightly more irreverent, a cheekier sense of humor, you know, and definitely more about stories of the everyday than my grandfather. And I think she just, uh, she used to tell me stories every day. You know, whenever I would be with her, when I would stay with them, every day I would bug her for stories. And they were simple folk tales. Like a lot of them were just, you know, the Chidhi Achidda kind of stories. Then they were more complicated stories with music in them, with some rhymes in them. <laughs> Unfortunately, I only remember snatches of those. And then I remember when I learned to read, she heaved a sigh of relief. And she said, Up yeah, kahani 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 karna band <laughs> so like she'll stop now bugging me for stories every day but i was i feel i was really lucky to have like you say grandparents are bridges and that was a bridge to this folklore traditions of uh, you know eastern up where my grandparents were from or from that whole tradition of oral storytelling really which is so rare now like how who even tells stories to each other anymore you know the whole sort of bastaangango tradition um is you know manifest in these kind of instances I think so yeah I I really did get a taste for story early from my grandmother I think and that kind of carried through for the rest of my life.
1: Yeah and this reminds me of uh, you know Farah Bashir who wrote uh, Rumors of Spring right she also shared a very special relationship with her grandmother and the whole book basically it's like the you know the soul of the grandmother uh, seeps through the entire book so Mm -hmm. uh, you know I was curious about um, you know, the fairy tales we grew up on, like you said, you know, these first stories that, that we encounter, right? Because mine uh, was mostly what was fed to me by Disney, right? All these fairy mm-hmm. tales where, where, you know, there are princesses. And and of course, in India, a lot of us grew up on mythology, right? So I mm. want to know, what are some of the Afghani folklores that you heard during your research? Anything that stood out to you?
2: I mean, so there was a lot that was very similar. And in fact, something I was very interested to learn was that a version of the Panch Tantra. Is actually, uh, you know, quite familiar to people in Afghanistan as well. Um, I forget what it's called, but it was. I think how it went was that it was translated into Arabic and then from the Arabic into Persian. And Kalila and Dimna are what the volumes are called. So you know, the stories of the the clever crow and the the hare and the tortoise. All of these were stories that were quite familiar to people in uh, Kabul as well. Uh, you know, they had like very interesting Rhymes that children would sing, like there is one about how all the birds are sitting under a chinar tree and they're making a line and then they're flying away after sipping the water of Zamzam. So it's all, you know, there is a sense of connection, of course, because uh, I think we're all drawing from the same continuum. Um, many of the stories of, for example, Rustam and Saurabh, which we heard as, or I heard as children, of course, and from uh, probably from an older generation than you guys, but um these are stories that, uh, that a lot of Afghan children would have also heard of the heroes from Tushana, essentially.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of uh, the Disney, I watched, I think it was a Vox documentary where they explained fairy tales. And they said uh-huh. that Dis- Disney commercialized fairy tales so that now we only have one version. But mm-hmm. these fairy tales date back centuries and centuries and they appear in different versions all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. And it sort of like really made me think, you know, like it just kind of unites all of us yeah. uh, in a way. So I want to know, I mean, I've always been very curious. We've interviewed a lot of writers who were part of the Sangam, the, it's the most prestigious okay, writing yeah. <laughs> residency, Sangam writers residency. And you are also part of a couple of other residencies, but... I want, to un- I want to understand from you, you know, what actually happens at Sangam? <laughs> Which parts of the book did you describe? What was it like for you to be part of this residency with these other accomplished writers?
2: Actually, Sangam House was the very first residency I was um, a part of. And when I went there, this was a completely new world to me. I'd heard of it through a friend and she had said, um, you know, I've just got into this thing and it's really nice and sounded like a piece of you know a dream to me <laughs> because you mean you get a room you can just work and you don't have to cook for yourself and that sounds amazing so you know I decided to apply for it and Sangam House at that time was in uh, Nizthagram near Bangalore so it's a dancers village and uh, they had these beautiful rooms the whole surroundings were lovely and I was with these other as you say really accomplished writers and um, because I was so new to this whole thing of residencies I didn't know that it was of uh, the done thing for people to share their work and i was very very cagey about reading my own workout and i said no no i mean how can i just tell other people because it's so half baked and it's just not gonna you know it'll sound ridiculous it will i would feel very vulnerable um but a few evenings when other people very generously shared their work and i was able to see how fantastic that exchange is and how people's ideas just open doors for you in in different ways and i've I had realized it just wasn't just even the writing. Like in the mornings, the dancers would be rehearsing. I would just watch them practice and practice and practice and practice and just not stop until they got it right, you know. And that was really inspiring because you just a lot of writing is just working and working and banging your head against the keyboard until you get something right, you know. Until that movement, that music just falls into place and and you feel in sync with something inside you or outside you that you're trying to communicate on the page. And there is certainly a music, I think, at least for me, when when the words come in the right place and and the sentence makes sense. Um, I think I learned that from Sangam House. I was working as an independent journalist, and I would often just lose track of working on the book in the middle of all the immediate deadlines, that um, I really felt the need to have space and time that was away from my own space and my own routine. And I think residencies were incredibly helpful in giving that little space for my work. And also when you're around other writers who take your work seriously, who take their own work seriously, it's an incredible boost to your confidence. And I I really feel we don't talk about that enough, maybe, that how valuable it is to have your peers or to have other writers uh, just have a connection to what you're working on or to feel like, yes, what you're doing is important. That feeling, I think, is really important. And we never, we don't really talk about it enough, I think, when we talk about the kind of processes writers go through. Having that sense of belief that this is work, that this is important work, and that this is work worth doing. I think I got that a lot from my companions at writers' residencies around the world.
1: Yeah, and I think that energy is contagious, right? Like when you see, especially in your case, you also saw dancers, which is quite different from writing. But also in a different way, I think creativity has its ways of you know getting into each other's Absolutely. bones, and, mm. and that's what happens at our uh, you know at our workshops and our uh, bounds retreats as well, right? Because we think I think community is something that that's really lacking in India. So like like we said, you know there are very few opportunities in, in India which offers this kind of um, space to writers.
2: Absolutely, I agree with you hundred percent because and. Uh, I mean, McDowell, where I was really fortunate to spend a couple of months, is a multidisciplinary residency in uh, New Hampshire. Artists can have the option of having open studios if they want to share their work with uh, their peers and and other fellows at that time. And I remember walking into the studio of a visual artist, and his work was very sort of dominated by lines. And he had this series of notebooks that he had laid down across the studio. And I walked in sort of wrestling with some problem in my own text. And at some point, looking at his work, talking about a process, the knots just opened, you know. And I don't know how or what kind of uh, alchemy it was. But uh, in his work, in the visual work that he was doing, there was a door into my own work. And I think, I mean, that's just so valuable. And I agree with you absolutely that the sense of community is so precious to me. And, uh, you know, hats off to you guys for doing what you can to nurture it.
0: Okay. I really like that interdisciplinary learning. You know, I took an improv class and I found it so different from the storytelling that I was used to, but also so similar because some of the things that the teacher uh, was saying was, you know, like be very specific and add detail to your story to make it more believable. And I was like, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what you have to do in uh, writing, right? Uh, So I found, you know, the principles of storytelling similar, but also so different and across across art forms if you look out for them and I find that very interesting but yeah. I, let we can go on and on about that topic but coming back to the topic at hand I want to introduce us to our special reading section where we're going to explore book recommendations. So the first question that I have for you is what are three books you read uh, that you come back to, you know, time after time and then you mm. reread for fun? For
2: oh, fun. Uh, okay, that's a really good question. I find that my sort of texts that I, I keep going back to have changed over time. But certainly, like I said, Rebecca Solnit's work has been really wonderful for me to explore the whole idea of wandering as a sort of freedom. It's really, really interesting for me to have encountered her thoughts. Um, I also really enjoyed, um, an, another American journalist called Anna Batkhen. Uh, she has also written on Afghanistan. She's written about a fishing community in Senegal and her whole approach is again, just embedding herself in the lives of communities that I found so beautiful and her writing is just stunning, you know, <laughs> so, uh, she's another journalist whose work I admire deeply. I would say Svetlana Alexovich in the last years has really been my, um, maybe like the holy grail, the the that stone I keep returning to, reading her passages, her testimonies for to remember how much power there is in, in the voices of ordinary people that she's able to tap and and how there's so much poetry, there's so much music in what we think of as mundane realities. There's so many others, I mean, I Richard Kapuczynski's work on Shah's, I think the way he treats images with history is it's really inspiring. Um, I also really love um, you know, the book on uh, walking in, which is based in India, which is called Why Loiter, Which is a more academic work about the relationship between women and cities. Um, all of these, I think, uh, have really been quite critical. Besides this, you know, my comfort reads are George Hairs, which I've loved since I was uh, very young, and there were fo- there were so many of these titles in the cupboard in my grandmother's room in Aligarh. My um, I- paternal grandmother the house i grew up in uh, it was full of georgia tears it was full of cg woodhouse uh, stories so whenever i need something for my brain to just relax and you know take a break these are the books i end up most often just turning to.
1: yeah i think there are these um, you know ever evergreen books that we always um yeah that's a way of i think freezing our childhoods um, in our mind, so uh, you know, I was curious about the books uh, that explore Afghani culture or, or let us say, Persian folklore, because of course we know that it's quite rich in culture, right? So, do you have any recommendations for us if anybody wants to know more about Persian culture?
2: I mean, there's so many. I would say start maybe by reading Shahnameh or some abridged version of the shahnama uh, which is this fabulous, you know, myth about. Uh, it's a huge, huge story. About many many things happening, kings and queens and fantastic creatures. But reading even a little bit of that just gives you a sense of the sprawl of um, you know the imagination. Uh, it's not specifically about Afghan culture, but I think it's definitely part of this whole pan culture that connects us all. A book I really love about Kabul is uh, was originally a Bengali memoir by Sayyid Ali called uh, in the English translation by Nazis of Rose, it's called In a Land Far from Home. I, I cannot recommend this book highly enough because it is completely um, you know, full of humour, it's full of dry sort of observations, and it's also full of so much affection for Kabul and for the people there. And it's all from the perspective of a young man from Bengal, you know, setting forth to teach in a school there. And this was late 1920s so again a time of great turmoil in Kabul when King Amanullah had introduced a series of reforms and um, eventually there was a rebellion against this king and Sayyid Mushtabali was caught up in this rebellion and he in fact was evacuated from the airport and there are just these echoes that when you read this book now it's just so it really sends a shiver down your spine so, same sort of resonances the the image of an empire in just dis- disarray retreating from a place uh, just remarkable how this book just goes from being poetic and, uh, and moving to incisive and insightful it's a very singular voice and I think I mean this is a book that I really wish more and more people would read
0: yeah it sounds very very interesting and a lot to read a lot to put on every yeah. time I do one of these podcasts I'm like oh my god like my like <laughs> is gonna increase so much um, yeah I don't know when I'm going to have the time. But anyway, we are running out of time. So let us move to our last round, our signature rapid fire round. I hope you enjoy it. I can ask the first question. Okay. Three things you were told not to do in Kabul, but you did anyway. One is walking. The others are?
2: Um, eating the street food, which was really delicious. And I'm really glad I did it. I think mean, just, you know, just. Meeting as many people as I could, you know, the whole sort of idea was to really keep to yourself as much as possible. But I mean, I I was just so lucky to have the opportunity to meet people from all over of so many different walks of life to listen to their stories. So just being omnivorous in terms of uh, social encounters.
1: Right. Okay. One Persian song you would love to dance to?
2: Oh, uh, (laughs) any really many of the songs by Emel Zaheer. I really love his music. Uh, He's the Afghan Elvis. Uh, He's called the Afghan Elvis and he has this incredible appeal across generations, I think. Uh, But a song I really love is a traditional folk tune called Taimana and that's been sung by many, many artists. And you can't really dance to it, but it's it's this dreamy melody that I think is really beautiful.
0: Okay, where do you write?
2: Everywhere. Um, (laughs) I wish I was one of those writers who had a fixed, or to had a beautifully arranged desk that I could take pictures of. But, you know, living in Mumbai makes you adaptable. Um, I live in a small apartment and uh, I write wherever I can find quiet spot. For instance, right now I'm speaking to you from my dining table. At some point I'll move into my bedroom to write and then if I'm lucky, if I have the space, maybe uh, into a quiet spot in a, in a different room. But uh, I think uh, the fun place I'm not very good at writing is cafes. Um, mm. That's the skill that has eluded me. Okay, so one
1: street in Afghanistan that you would not exchange for anything in the world.
2: Definitely. I mean, all the streets I lived in, I think are very precious to me. And they all have their own music. They came with a certain rhythm of the day, of the week. I remember watching the snowfall for the first time when I saw snowfall in Kabul. And a friend told me about this tradition they had, of, uh, which is called barfi, which is when you take the first snow and you Go to a friend's place or your relative's place, and you give them the first snow in their hand, and then they owe you a, a meal because of that. Um, <laughs> I remember watching. I remember watching the snow fall and going into this uh, friend's uh, workplace and uh, he said, "Well, you can give me the barfi now." You know, so he was sort of <laughs> tutoring me through this tradition, so he would give me the meal, and I just found it so. It it had this incredible beauty to it, the city with the snowfall. And it was a very empty time of the year. It was around the Christmas break, so a lot of the foreign workers had already left. Um, And I would see the snowfall on on the bare branches of a tree outside my window. Um, And then, of course, in the spring, there would be this riot of color all over the place. On Fridays, there would be ice cream sellers, you know, playing this Titanic theme song on an endless loop. And just for a break, they would play Happy Birthday, (laughs) you know. Um, all of these uh, all of these trees are really precious to me
0: that was so lovely and visual you should really do an audio book uh, of your <laughs> book but yeah the there last... is actually
2: an audio book out uh, oh. read by um, Sharnas Patel has read it and, oh amazing
0: uh, I don't know that congratulations that's, that's Thank fantastic you. Yeah, I think so... she's
2: done she's done a wonderful job and she, would, she was my dream pick for to read this book and, and I'm so glad it worked out
0: fantastic so but what is next for you
2: that is a really scary question, you know, and somehow even <laughs> many, many months after having the book come out, I'm still not prepared for it. Um, in terms of uh, writing, like you said, I've written for Granta, I'm writing uh, writing work as and when it comes, but uh, in terms of a second book, I'm just letting things take their own time because uh, I need to find a subject that engages me as completely and as thoroughly as Kabul, I think, for me to be able to get into it.
0: I was thinking about that, you know, because it's such a immersive book that has taken so long and has really, you know, capt- as you say, captured your imagination. I was thinking that surely it must be difficult to, you know, go from there. That is something I was thinking about. So I totally sort of, you know, relate to that. But we hope to see something from you very, very soon.
2: Thank you. I also hope that. <laughs>
1: I think the book and the place like grew on you. It was kind of like that. That was the image, you know. So I probably... The second one, even if it takes time, it will be something as rich as this.
2: So thank (laughs) you. Thank you so
1: much. Thanks for speaking to us, Taran.
0: That was such a soul satisfying talk, no? Tara, I'm so inspired. It was. And you know, when I I closed her book and I closed the cover, there was the satisfaction, like you said, soul satisfaction Because I had read Mm. this truly amazing non-fiction book that speaks to me and you can do so much with the non-fiction genre, so many ideas can be conveyed and as I mentioned in the intro, um, I have a few mentorship slots left this year and I am looking to work with writers on some of their non-fiction ideas. So if you have an idea and you want to work with me, please do click on the link in the show note and let's see if we can work together. Speaking of nonfiction, um, I'm like beyond excited for the next episode because we are going to be speaking to pre-history enthusiast, one of my favorite topics of all time, Tony Joseph, who is the author of Early Indians and we're going to be going back in time and we're going to be exploring the origins of how Indians came to India and about and so much more.
1: Yeah, and you know, Tara, the the thing is, his research draws from so many fields, right? Like history, archaeology, linguistics, population genetics, philology, my God. So I would urge all our listeners to read his book for a a very, I would say, insightful view into prehistory. So follow us for creative content. We are at Bound India on all social media platforms. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back next Wednesday with Tony Joseph.